Beginning with Isaiah 9, here's what the Word of God has to say. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now turning to Philippians chapter 2, picking up and and reading in verse 5, this is what the Word of God has to say there. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and in and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isaiah 9 chapter, Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 is likely for most of you a familiar passage, whether or not you necessarily knew the reference of it. When I began to read it, uh, you probably recognized it. It's probably a verse that you could quote by memory. It's a, it's a verse that we often read during Advent season. It's, you'll see it posted on billboards and, and other Christmas decorations. For those of you who, who like a certain kind of music, probably when you read the words of Isaiah chapter 9, for unto us a child is born, for unto us a, chi- a son is given, what's ringing in the back of your mind is uh, uh, George Frederick Handel's Messiah and the great... For unto us, a song that he wrote in that, in that work. It's a wonderful passage. It's a familiar passage. It's one that we often read during Advent because it proclaims, it, it declares the coming of the Messiah. This Advent season, I'll be preaching each sermon of the four sermons from Isaiah 9, 6 with, with attention to the names of Jesus. So we'll begin there, and then I'll try to connect that for us to a New Testament passage as well. Today, I want us to consider the first two phrases of the passage. So not even the entirety of the verse, just the two first two phrases, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. In these two phrases, we have a fundamental, foundational truth of the hope of the gospel declaring the nature of of Jesus. Now, I want to give you a bit of a vocabulary lesson this morning, and you all will get a gold star if you can figure out a way between now and next Sunday to use this word in natural conversation. You ready? Hypostatic union. Say it with me. Hypostatic union. Let me define it for you, and then you can figure out how to use it in conversation this week. That's probably not a term that you have encountered before. Probably most of you have never even heard it uh, in normal conversation, Uh, but it is a very 
very important theological term. So hypostatic comes from the Greek word hypostasis. And hypostasis means in Greek essence, person, or substance. It's the word used in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, translated as nature. Listen to that passage. It says, he, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Hypostasis there, his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Hypostatic union means the personal union of Jesus's two natures. Now your question is, what are the two natures of Jesus? Jesus is both all God and all man at the same time. You with me? Jesus is all God and all man at the same time. So it is theological error to think that somehow Jesus surrendered his divinity when he was born uh, in, in this world. No, he kept, maintained, and was the eternal God through whom all things were created from the moment of his birth of Mary. So he was, but from the moment of his birth of Mary, he became flesh, and so he was all God. In his person, he was all God, and he was all man in his person. In other words, when he stumped his toe, it hurt just like you when you stump your toe. When he got hungry, he got hungry. When he got thirsty, he got thirsty. He needed sleep because he was all God and all man. And the way we describe those two personal natures of Jesus is the term hypostatic union. Now, I can't wait to hear how you're going to use that in conversation this week. Isaiah, prophesying this glorious mystery in chapter 9, verse 6, of a Messiah coming, was going to be all God and all man, declared that unto us would be born a child, speaking of his manhood, children, babies. A child is to be born. That's not unusual. And a son would be giving, pointing to his divinity, that Jesus is the son of God. A child will be born in the flesh. A son will be given, God's very son. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that God sent an angel to Joseph to tell him that his betrothed bride, Mary, had conceived and was going to bear a, a child, but that she had conceived by the Holy Spirit, and was to and was the one, and, and that her child was the one for whom the prophet Isaiah had declared and foretold would be called Emmanuel. And Matthew's gospel or gives us the translation of Emmanuel. He says, which means God with us, or God in the flesh with us. A son is born, a child is born, a son is given. Friends, the glorious hope of Christmas is that God came in the flesh to redeem us from our sins. I mean, that's the good news, friends. That is the good news. The prophet Isaiah declared this future hope, and the New Testament celebrates the fulfillment of this hope. And I want you today to see three things, primarily beginning with Isaiah 6, so Isaiah 9, the declaration that 
Jesus is, both God and man. But then really giving attention this morning to the Philippians passage, I want you to see these three things. The Bible teaches us about the hypostatic union of Christ. Number one, that that in itself is an act of grace. God did not owe us. We didn't deserve it. Jesus, God in the flesh, is an act of grace. Secondly, it is a beautiful, wonderful, glorious gift of love. And then lastly, the name Jesus and all the other names that are given to him, like Emmanuel, is a name of hope. Let's begin this morning with an act of grace. I would draw your attention back to the Philippians passage and specifically verse 7. Where the Bible tells us that Jesus, starting in verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, in other words, he is God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. When we think about the Christmas story, it is a testimony of grace. God demonstrated his grace and his love for us in action, in actual, determinative action. There's a lot in these verses It points to the divinity of Christ. It points to his eternal nature. It points to his equality with God, his incarnation in the flesh, his willing uh, death on the cross, the, the promise of the triumphal entry even. But verse 7 tells us that Jesus emptied himself. The, the action is taken by God out of his own purpose and will. I, I think that the imagery here is of the pouring out of an offering. A total gift. One of the great, greatest misunderstandings of man is our standing before God. Many ask when things unpleasant happen to us, why do bad things happen to good people? With that question, there is a, a judgment both of the goodness of man and of the, almost, I think the right word would be immorality of bad things happening to someone so, so good. Some even get angry with God when life does not treat them in a way that they judge fair. How dare God allow this to happen in my life? Some demand that God do something for them before they believe. And so you, you find this in the New Testament with the, with the religious leaders telling Jesus, we'll believe if you do one more miracle. One more thing, Jesus, then we will, we will give our faith in you. And even some Christians approach the gospel and, and their relationship to the church as a burden and a chore rather than a gift and a blessing. These responses flow from a heart that assumes that God owes you something or that you are deserving of good. The truth is that the only thing you are owed, listen to me carefully, is the righteous judgment, insert wrath, of God. And friends, God 
could have executed his righteous judgment and wrath from the glory of heaven and never bothered with incarnating himself in the flesh. Paul is reminding us that the gift of salvation is a gift that flowed singularly from the grace of God. He did this from his mind, from his heart, as a gift of grace to us. He chose to empty himself into the flesh. He chose to humble himself before man. He chose to willingly die on the cross. The love of God, this gift of grace that he gave us, is not just, is more than words or thoughts or feelings. The love of God was demonstrated with action that, that, that amazing night that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Emmanuel, God with us, all God, all man with us in this world. The Son of God was born as a child in the flesh. It's a glorious act of grace demonstrating his love in action. And friends, I just, part of what I want you to do this morning is marvel. Because frankly, there is nothing that compares to this great love of God. Nothing. Often when we try to explain something, we try to find something to compare it to. So this is like this, or this is an example of that, but... But this only works with comparable things. What compares to God stepping out of the glory of heaven into earth? There's nothing that compares to that. There's no one-to-one comparison. Anything we try to analogate that with, with on this side of heaven falls woefully short. There is no comparison to the love of God. The love of God is unlike anything ever known. The testimony of Christmas, friends, is by its very nature overwhelming. One of the dangers that we experience is that when we are familiar with something, it becomes common. So, of course, Jesus was born to Mary, and he was laid in a manger that seems normative to us he spent his first night in this world in the stall built for for animals his family had to flee persecution in the early days of his life but those stories are familiar and common to us we don't we don't think anything about them we we portray them during christmas we tell them we read them we we remember them but brothers and sisters listen to me it is a story that is miraculous and mysterious all at the same time that god would do that for you and me the testimony of christmas is overwhelming in that god who was and is eternal worthy of all glory worthy of all honor who has dwelt eternally in the glory of heaven, chose to leave the glory of heaven for the frailty of the flesh. God, who needs nothing, chose to empty himself into into the body of an infant that would get hungry and would get cold. He chose to come to earth in the humblest of circumstances, not into the palace of a king, but into the stable of animals. He chose to live among men and suffer among their own ridicule and hatred of him. He chose to die in our place. The the Philippians says he humbled himself even to the point of death, death on the cross. He chose to provide for your redemption and to provide for your salvation. To this there is no comparison, not in heaven and not on earth. The righteous glory of God exposes and condemns man's sin. 
in your sin-corrupted flesh, the only atonement you can achieve is to die for your own sins. Listen to me carefully. In your corrupted sin-flesh self, the only thing you can do for you is to die for your own sins. But there's no one among us who is righteous that could die for another except for Jesus who knew no sin. The glorious wonder of God in the flesh is that Jesus became flesh so that in the flesh he could offer himself who knew no sin for the redemption and salvation of man. And maybe the greatest testimony to this uncomparable, glorious act of grace is that he loved us first. Discussing this very thing, John writes, we love because he loved us, because he first loved us. The world understands love, a love that is predicated on uh, mutual benefit. Your friends and neighbors that you spend time with this week, they, they understand help those who help you, hurt those who hurt you. They understand, they'll use phrases like marriage is 50-50. That never works. The, the, the mantra of our day is do whatever makes you happy, which is a self-centered, humanistic approach to life. This is not the testimony of Scripture. The testimony of Scripture is that God loved you while you were enemies of God, haters of the truth, against the will of God, rebellious to the commands of God, and stained and soiled by sin. Jesus came to earth in the flesh while we hated him. Even so, he stepped out of heaven for the ungrateful. He took on flesh for the rebellious. He suffered for sinners, and he died for you and me. The glory of Christmas is that it is the greatest act of grace ever given. God, out of the glory of heaven, came to earth in the flesh. It's an act of grace, and certainly it's a gift of love. Look at verse 8 with me out of Philippians chapter 2. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It is right, it is appropriate, it is required, I think. When we preach Christmas sermons, we must preach the cross as well. And the reason for that is if you disconnect his coming with, from its purpose, you don't understand why he came. Jesus came on purpose to die for our sins. He didn't come just to, to be among us. He didn't come just to experience what we were experiencing. No, he came, God in the flesh, to die for us in the flesh. An act of grace, a gift of love. All gifts are costly. God's love is significantly costly. Parents, this morning, you understand this principle that love costs you something. You love your children. You'd give anything for your children. You deny yourselves for your children. Those of you who have young children, if, if, if I just give you permission, you might just lay down on that couch, on that pew, and take a nap for a little bit. You've, you've denied yourself sleep. You've 
Denied your own self food. I remember going to restaurants and feeding the children, and by the time our food came, they were ready to go, and we were all miserable. And even though parents do all these things and more willingly, happily, maybe not happily, willingly, because they love their children, every parent here today would also acknowledge that there is a great cost to love. There's a cost to loving your children. There's a cost to loving your spouse. Whatever you love will cost you. You sacrifice for what you love. You deny yourself for what you love. You seek the best for what you love. And we recognize that the cost that Jesus paid on the cross, but friends, I want to make the case this morning, yes, there is the greatest cost was paid on the cross, but there's also a cost at the manger as well. God who created all things humbled himself in the flesh as an infant who could not at that moment in the flesh feed himself. God says in other places in Scripture, I don't need you to serve me. And yet he humbled himself into the flesh of an infant who didn't even have at birth the strength to hold up his own head. God who is worthy to receive all the glory and worship of all heaven and creation humbled himself in the flesh as an infant who was laid in the straw of an animal's feeding trough in a drafty barn. There's certainly the cost at the cross, but there was also cost at the manger too. Both the manger and the cross were costly choices motivated out of the great abundant love of God. Love is costly. And frankly, friends, the extravagance of God's love is unfathomable. One of the realities of our modern world is that we calculate the cost of almost everything. A simple Google search can give you some, some, someone's calculations of how much wars cost, how much proposed legislation might cost, uh, uh, the productivity loss or gain of something. Economists are always calculating the cost of everything. But there's no way to, to understand the greatness and the cost of God's love. How can the created understand the cost of eternal God taking the form of flesh? How can the sinful understand the cost of the perfect one suffering ridicule and judgment of sinful man? This is why, this is why we never get tired of telling the story of Christmas it overwhelms us every time. Whether you're four or 84, the testimony of Christmas is precious because it's the testimony that Jesus came to die for you, that he did this out of love for you, that he did this for your redemption. That's why the hymn writer wrote these words, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. Oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Friends, Jesus willingly endured the cross. He willingly gave himself for you. To understand the death of Jesus on the cross, you must first understand the manger. Jesus did not go to the cross by chance. He went to the cross on purpose. And we're able to say that because he also was born, not by chance, 
but by purpose. He was not captured by men. He came to man. The testimony of Christmas is that Jesus, according to his own will and his own choice, came to us. He willingly gave up the glory of heaven to come to earth. He willingly came to live in the flesh among us. He willingly came to suffer ridicule and abuse. He willingly came on purpose to die on the cross. Philippians 2 connects those two things. He emptied himself that he might die for you and me. He chose to empty himself. He chose to humble himself. At any point, he could have asserted his right to, to worship, to honor, and glory. Do you understand? Because he's all God and all man, at any point in his life ministry here, he could have called down all the glory of heaven, consumed the earth with fire, and gone back to the glory of heaven. And yet he didn't. Because he came with purpose on purpose to die for you and me. At any time, even at the cross, he could have removed himself. Do you remember that while he was hanging on the cross, some of the ridicule that was hurled at him was, if you're really God, why don't you come down? And you want to know the beautiful testimony of how much he loved us? It's that he didn't. As those he came to save, or spitting and hurling insults at him. He was completing and finishing the work of which he came to do. In all these things, he willingly endured them so that man might be saved. Now, I want to draw your attention to one more thing out of the passage. And that is verses 9, 10, and 11. Because Paul points to the purpose, the reason, the motivation behind all of this. Verse 9, therefore. So remember when Paul writes the word therefore, he's tying what's coming next to everything that just went before. So because Jesus emptied himself, because he humbled himself, because he came to, to die even on the cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want to just make two points here. Under the name of hope. The name of Jesus is a name of hope. Jesus, or Joshua, means Yahweh saves. Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah 9, 6 child is born, a son is given. And then in Philippians 2, he is highly exalted, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so at the name of Jesus, every tongue confesses and every knee bows. For, or to, the glory of God the Father. Just two things here. All of this from Isaiah 9 all the way to the New Testament is for the will of God. The last statement of Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7, is important to understanding the prophetic word of Isaiah and how it connects to Philippians 2. So if 
you you still have your thumb stuck in, in your passage there in Isaiah 9, flip back with me for just a moment, and you'll find that the very last statement of Isaiah 9, verse 6, excuse me, uh, verse, um, verse 7, the last statement of verse 7 is, so verse 7, it says, of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, period. And then there's one more statement. And it says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In other words, the prophet is declaring that the power of God, the desire of God, the will of God, the pleasure of God will accomplish the prophetic declaration of God, that a child will be born and a son will be given, that the government will rest upon his shoulders, that the government of his, will, of his government will have no end and never cease to increase. Now, the hope of the Messiah is not a hope in the power or work of man. That's the big point here. When Isaiah declared that a child was to be born and a son was to be given, and all the other things that came with that promise, he said the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is not something that comes about by the will or the power of man. This is coming about by the power and the will and the declaration of God of all of eternity. The hope of the Messiah is the hope uh, in the power and the will of God. Connect this with Philippians 2. Where because he has emptied himself, humbled himself even to death on the cross, what does God say? He says, because of this, he has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name above every other name. In other words, God has provided for your salvation. The hope of Christmas, the testimony of of the resurrection, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, all of those are pointing to the power of God, providing for your salvation. God has provided for your redemption. God did this according to his will, his desire, his pleasure, his purpose. Emmanuel, God with us, is a name of great hope because it testifies to the promise of God to give his son in the flesh. It testifies to the faithfulness of God to keep his promise from Isaiah 9 all the way to the the New Testament. It testifies to the love of God to surrender the glory of heaven to come in the flesh. It testifies to the power of God to accomplish his perfect will perfectly. The zeal of the Lord has accomplished For the will of God and for the glory of God. Verses 10 and 11 of Philippians 2 and the last sentence of Isaiah 9, 7 help you have a right perspective on the workings of God. A natural first response to the coming of Jesus in the flesh is to think about, how it, think about it in terms of how it blesses man. That's not wrong. I get that. Because when we talk about the good news of the gospel, it's good news to sinful men because it It's a word of hope and redemption for us. Jesus, Emmanuel, God in the flesh, is indeed an overwhelming, wonderful blessing to sinful men. This is is certainly worthy of celebrating and rejoicing. It is indeed good news. However, the Bible points to a more important motivation for the redemptive work of Jesus. Isaiah 9 Philippians 2 points to a a more 
eternally significant, a more important reason and purpose for the redemptive work of Jesus, and that is the glory of God. This is not flippant. This is not just something to add. This is the foundational truth of the testimony of God. God does all things for his glory, including your redemption. Isaiah declares that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Paul declares that the the ultimate purpose of the incarnation is for the worship of Jesus to, he says, to the glory of God the Father. And and the point is, is that all that God does, he does for his glory. Have you been brought to salvation today? Praise God. He did that for his glory. child was born and a son was given for the glory of God. Mary conceived a son by the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. Jesus emptied himself, being born in the flesh for the glory of God. Jesus humbled himself to death on the cross for the glory of God. God raised him up on the third day for the glory of God. Sinners are drawn to salvation for the glory of God. Emmanuel, God with us, is for the glory of God. I've already said that any worldly analogy falls terribly short. So how do you end a sermon about the hypostatic union of Jesus? James 5, or the fifth, was king of Scotland from 1513 to his death in 1543. And there's a legend associated with his rule that James V would sometimes disguise himself as a commoner and walk amongst the people. Now, to those who are his supporters and, 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 and recount this legend in a positive light, say, about him, that what motivated him to do this was that he wanted to to see how his subjects really lived and to know what they were really struggling with. As you can understand, there was much to separate the king in his palace from the commoners that he ruled over. So some say he he did that so that he can know what was really happening to know his subjects well. But others, and maybe there's truth to both sides. There's probably truth to both sides. Others more critical of James V recognized that he was very paranoid of his nobles and their loyalty. And so some say that he, he would disguise himself as a commoner so that he could, he could determine the true loyalties of his nobility, of the nobility around him. Now, what, what, whatever motivated him and, uh, to, to do this, the, the reality of it is is that uh, the... Um, the, the thought of a king walking among people disguised as a commoner is a, is a theme that, that is used by many storytellers, and it's a fascinating thought for many of us to, to ponder that one who has power and the authority of a king would walk among those under his rule to know their plight and experience their suffering. That storyline resonates with us. But stories of earthly kings disguised as commoners generally end with a dramatic reveal. 
Maybe they discover someone mistreating their, their subjects, and so they throw off their disguise, reveal who they are, and exert their authority to bring about justice. Or, or maybe like uh, James V, they, they discover some uh, disloyal nobleman, and so again, they throw off their disguise, they, they expose who they really are, and they, they, they quell or put down the, the rebellion. But however for whatever reason, at some point in the story, generally it goes that the king reveals who he is, he exerts his authority as king, and then he returns back to his palace, separated once again from his subjects. Friends, the hope of the gospel is not found in a king pretending to be amongst his subjects. The hope of the gospel is that the king of kings humbled himself to be with us in the flesh, to die for us in the flesh, that sinners might be redeemed and made holy to dwell with him in his house forever. The king of kings humbled himself to the king of men. The king, a God of all of eternity, subjected himself to the weakness and frailty of flesh. The one who is, through whom all things were created, the eternal God who created all things in heaven and earth, humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross. Jesus came in the flesh, all God, all man, to die for man's sin that the redeemed may dwell with him forever and ever and ever in his presence. To us, a child was born, and a son was given, who was called Emmanuel, God with us. That, my friends, is a glorious hope. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.